Uh, With this sermon, we're going to be entering into a series of five short stories in Luke's gospel that correct certain ideas about who Jesus is. Because if Luke's gospel is about one thing, it's about showing us who Jesus is. Uh, From verse 17 of chapter 5 all the way down to verse 11 of chapter 6, you're going to see a pattern repeating itself again and again and again. In these stories, Jesus or his disciples will do something, and then the religious leaders, they'll they'll be surprised by it. They'll be shocked by what he's doing, and they'll make remarks, and then Jesus will explain himself, and he'll say something important about who he is. So, for example, in in the story we're going to be looking at today, in Luke chapter 5, verses 17 through 26, in this story, the longest of the five Jesus is going to make it clear to the Pharisees, to the scribes, to all those living in in, in Galilee, and to us as well, that he's more than a teacher. He's more than a worker of miracles. He's going to burst through the expectations that even the most learned of men have of the Messiah, because Jesus is much more than they expect. And that's going to be difficult for them to grasp. But An important thing for us to understand, to keep in mind, a point that can be drawn from each of these five stories is that Jesus is always more than we expect. And and there are a few reasons for this. I'll highlight two before we begin. First of all, Jesus came to save us from our sins. Now, as you know, the bigger the problem, the bigger the necessary solution. Jesus is a bigger and greater and stronger Savior than we are prepared to expect because we've never really come to grips with the greatness, the immensity of the sins from which we need to be saved. And secondly, we often have too low a view of God. We don't see God as, as kind and merciful and gracious and generous. No, no, we often see God as, as a grumpy old man who has to be convinced to be kind to us. And as a result, we don't expect as great a gift as Jesus. So because we have no real idea about the hole that we have dug, because we have no real idea about the greatness of the God who has promised to save us, for these two reasons, we ourselves often underestimate the Savior of the world. And even those of us who have been Christians for a very, very long time, we need to give ourselves freedom to be surprised by who Jesus is. We need to give ourselves freedom to be surprised by the Savior that we've been given, a Savior who is always more than He seems and always far more than we have the imagination or the intelligence to expect. So in this first of these five Christological controversies, we're going to see that Jesus is more than just a miracle worker. He's more than just a teacher. He's definitely more than just a good moral example. He is all those things, a great teacher, a great worker of miracles, an excellent, the best moral example, but, but all of those things put together could never save us. Only a Jesus who is the sin-forgiving Son of Man could possibly save us, and in this text we're going to see that that's exactly who Jesus claims to be. So we're going to start reading this morning at, uh, in Luke chapter 5, Verse 17, we're going to read all the way down to verse 26. So Luke chapter 5, verse 17, this is the Word of God. On one of those days, as he was teaching, 
Pharisees and teachers of the law were sitting there who had come from every village of Galilee and Judea and from Jerusalem. And the power of the Lord was with him to heal. And and behold, some men were bringing on a bed a a man who was paralyzed. And they were seeking to bring him in and lay him before Jesus. But finding no way to bring him in because of the crowd, they went up on the roof and let him down with his bed through the tiles into the midst before Jesus. And when he saw their faith, he said, Man, your sins are forgiven you. And the scribes and the Pharisees began to question, saying, Who is this who speaks blasphemies? Who can forgive sins but God alone? When Jesus perceived their thoughts, he answered them, Why do you question in your hearts? Which is easier to say, your sins are forgiven you, or to say, rise and walk, but that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins? He said to the man who was paralyzed, I say to you, rise, pick up your bed, and go home. And immediately he rose up before them and picked up what he'd been lying on and went home, glorifying God. And amazement seized them all, and they glorified God and were filled with awe, saying, We have seen extraordinary things today. The grass withers, the flowers fade, and, but the word of our Lord will stand forever. Now, at the beginning of this passage, we see Jesus as we've come to expect him. He's doing two things that he's done already several times throughout this book of Luke. He's, he's preaching, he's teaching the people the Word of God, and he's also doing miracles. The power of the Lord was with him to heal. So Jesus is doing what we expect. But, but there's, 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 a, there's a third thing that, that Luke brings to our attention here at the beginning of this passage. He tells us that in addition to those things, in addition to the fact that Jesus was teaching and working miracles, there were these, these religious teachers. Pharisees and teachers of the law were sitting there who'd come from every village of Galilee and Judea and from Jerusalem. Now, we're not told why they were there, but it takes very little imagination to to realize why they were there. Jesus was an up-and-coming teacher. The people were, were responding to his message. The people were responding to the gospel that Jesus was proclaiming. The, the, the people were understanding that Jesus was teaching with greater authority than even they were able to teach with. Jesus was someone to watch. And I'm sure that if, if, if any of these men, any of these Pharisees or teachers of the law were, were men who had congregations, I'm sure many of their congregants had asked them, hey, what do you think about Jesus? What do you think about what he's saying? What do you think about what he's doing? So, of course, they had to find out for themselves. And so they gather. It's almost like an impromptu meeting of synod. They gather there all around Jesus to listen to him, to find out what is he saying, what is he doing. So they're watching him carefully. But outside the house where they're meeting, Outside the house where Jesus and these teachers of the law and the Pharisees are, we find these other men. Four men upright, 
one man lying down, one man lying on a stretcher, four men carrying that stretcher. We find five friends eager to find Jesus, eager to meet with Jesus. You see, the man laying on the, on the stretcher, he was a, a paralytic. He'd, he'd been paralyzed. We don't know how long he'd been paralyzed. Could have been a day. Could have been for his entire life. But his friends know that more than anything, this man needs Jesus. And when the crowd keeps them from coming into the house, the friends don't decide, okay, you know what, we'll, we'll, we'll sit out here, we'll wait for Jesus. No, they're far too eager, they're far too almost impatient for that. They don't want to risk even the possibility of their friend having to suffer with his paralysis for longer than he has to. They don't want to risk the possibility of, of missing Jesus if, if he slips out the back door. And so they, they do something rather bold. They're not only impatient, they're also impertinent. And almost almost impolite. They walk up the side of the house. You see, many of these houses back then had, had stairs on the outside. So they walk up the side of the house. They, they go up to the roof. These roofs were usually flat. And they start opening up the roof. They start pulling the clay tiles off of the roof to make a hole big enough for their friend to go down to meet Jesus. See, these four men will stop at absolutely nothing to get their friend who needs Jesus to Jesus. And we can take an example from that, can't we? We can take an example from that because all of us, I'm sure, all of us have friends that we know need to meet Jesus. But few of us are bold enough to actually bring them to Him. Many of us would think to ourselves, you know what, no, um, I can't possibly do that. That would simply not be polite. There are two things you don't talk about at work. You don't talk about politics. You don't talk about religion. So I'm not going to talk about Jesus. It would simply be impolite. But we could take an example from these friends. We could see that Jesus is what our friends, our neighbors, need more than absolutely anything else in the whole world. So we need to bring people to Jesus. And many of us have this idea that, that bringing people to Jesus is something that we should do on a one-to-one level, right? Personal evangelism. And, and this is good. It's, it's a good thing. If you're doing that, keep doing it. It's fantastic, but, but it always has to go beyond that. We must not only bring the gospel on a one-to-one basis, but we must also realize something important, because where is it that we ourselves meet most intimately, most closely, most powerfully with the risen Christ? Well, it's in the gathered congregation. Where is it that Christ displays His power to bring people from death to life? Where is it that we have the, 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 the giving of the Word and the giving of the sacraments? Well, it's, it's where the preaching of the Word takes place. It's where God's chosen servants are presenting the congregation with Christ Himself. See, when we gather together as believers in church, we're not just gathering to hear about Jesus. We're not just gathering to hear information. We are gathering because Christ has told us that when we gather, He Himself will come and meet with us. So if we have friends who need to meet Jesus, we need to bring them to church. Romans 10 tells us that this is exactly where we need to bring all of our evangelistic efforts. How will they call, Paul asks, how will they call on Him in whom they have not believed? And how are they to believe in Him whom they have never heard? Heard. 
I'll say that again. How are they to believe in him whom they have never heard? Understand that in the New Testament's understanding, preaching, it's not just information transfer. You're not just supposed to leave this place with more information in your minds, with more knowledge in your brains. It's not just me standing here giving you information about the Lord Jesus. No, no, no. Preaching, when carried out by those set apart for the task, preaching, when carried out by those ordained by Christ and by His church to that task, it itself is an encounter with Christ. And that's why Paul goes on in in, in Romans 10 and just rejoices. How are they to hear without someone preaching? And how are they to preach unless they are sent? As it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who bring good news. People need to come to Jesus. But now let's go back to the story. Let's go back to Luke. Jesus sees this stretcher coming down from the ceiling. He sees this man lying there in front of him. He sees, notice this, he sees what is invisible as well. He sees the faith of those four men up there on the roof, and he sees the faith of this man lying in front of him. And what does he say? He does not say, rise up, take your bed, and walk. No, not yet. He's got something else that he has to do first. He says to him, man, your sins are forgiven you. Now, why does Jesus do this? It it seems like a strange thing to do. They had not come to have his sins forgiven. They had come so that he could be healed of paralysis. Why would Jesus forgive this man's sins instead of giving him what he he was clearly there for? Now, now, we who know something about Jesus know that, of course, he came to seek and to save those who were lost. He came to save his people from their sins. This is what Jesus has come to do. He's come to get rid of sin. But at the same time, why is he doing it here? Why is he doing it now? This man hasn't asked for forgiveness, has he? No, he hasn't. He hasn't. In in fact, the only implied request was was, was a request for healing from paralysis. But we see here, don't we? We see here a glorious display of the grace of our Lord Jesus. To really understand this, you need to know that this man is asking Jesus for his life back. Right? He's been, he's been struck down, he's been injured somehow, and now he's paralyzed. And he's asking Jesus for his life back. He wants his life back. He wants to be restored. But Jesus knows, as I'm sure this man knows, Jesus knows that life is more than just pushing off the weakness of death and disease. Life is more even than the, than the, than the perpetual avoidance of death. See, the Bible is clear that without a relationship of faith and love with the living God, even perpetual life, if somehow we could attain that through science and better living, without a relationship with the living God, even perpetual life would itself be just another sort of perpetual death. See, life without God, Jesus understands, and this man understood, life without God is no life at all. There's no real vitality to it. And so you see that Jesus answers this man's prayer with a better answer than this man could possibly have dreamt of. And this is of great comfort to us, isn't it? This is of great comfort to us because we often understand that our prayers are, 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 are weak. Our, our prayers come from hearts that have so little faith in them. 
Our prayers come from minds that have been so little changed, truly changed by the Word of God. We often, we know that we often ask for the wrong things. And we know that we often ask for too little of the right things. But God is too good a God to only give us what we ask for. God is too generous and too kind to only limit the giving of His gifts to the things that we ask for. See, Jesus, right now, Jesus is still in heaven doing this exact same thing. Taking our weak prayers, taking our small and unimaginative prayers, and and perfecting them by the power of the Holy Spirit and by His own petitions on, on, on our behalf at His Father's side. Jesus is still answering prayers in unexpected ways. And that's precisely what he sees here. And this is really a, a, a focus that, that the whole Bible is kind of oriented, uh, orienting us towards. Not, not only praying for, for physical healing, not only praying for physical wealth and physical peace and safety and so on, but praying more than that, praying more than that for our relationship with God. And we have an example of that in, in Psalm 88, which I had us sing. Because in Psalm 88, The presenting problem, the most obvious problem to human eyes is the fact that there are enemies all around Israel. There are enemies that are mocking Israel. There are enemies that are weakening Israel that are just blasting Israel out of the water. That's the presenting problem. But the psalmist realizes that there's actually actually a deeper problem. There's a deeper problem. They are alienated from God. See, it looks, like the, it looks like the request that is uttered several times throughout that psalm is just, uh, restore us, O God, let your face shine, that we may be saved from our enemies. But as the psalm develops, the focus is taken away from the enemies of the psalmist, and the focus is put on the spiritual condition of the psalmist and of his people. It's put on their relationship to God. And so the psalmist finishes the psalm in this way, let your hand be on the man of your right hand, the son of man whom you have made strong for yourself. Then we shall not turn back from you. Give us life, he says, and we will call upon your name. And so Jesus says to the man, not just rise up and walk, but Jesus gives him a better gift than he had the imagination to ask for, he says to him, man, your sins are forgiven you. And now we've already noted that the Pharisees and the teachers of the law, they're sitting there as well. They're sitting there as teachers who are listening to another teacher. And they're shocked by what Jesus says. Man, your sins are forgiven you. They ask, who is this who speaks blasphemies? Who can forgive sins but God alone? Both those questions are really one question. And, and it seems like a legitimate question. See, the Pharisees and the scribes, they knew that there were ways to get your sins forgiven. Right? The word forgiven happens, I think it's 17 times in the Old Testament, and 15 of those times happen in, in the Mosaic Law. God, through Moses, showed Israel exactly how to get sins forgiven. Offer up this sacrifice and this sacrifice, and, 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 then, and then Moses says, once the person has offered that sacrifice with the help of the priest, the priest shall say to him, your sins have now been forgiven. So Jesus is not the first person to say, your sins are forgiven you. But Jesus is not a, he's not a Levitical priest, is he? 
He's not from the tribe of Levi. He's not from the family of Aaron. And so the Pharisees are upset because they see Jesus doing what only God has the authority to do. For anyone else to take this authority upon themselves was, in fact, blasphemous. Their, 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 their question has some merit. It was to contravene the, the prescribed ways of God. And so the only way, listen, the only way that Jesus could legitimately be the one to proclaim forgiveness of sins, what he's claiming to do here, not just as a representative of God, but as more than that, as one who was God himself. The only way that Jesus could legitimately proclaim this man's sins forgiven would be if he was the one who actually did remove sins as far from us as the east is from the west. And this whole question of the forgiveness of sins really brings up an important point. See, there are many in our culture today, and perhaps even some here today this morning, who have this idea that that you don't need anyone else to forgive you. As long as you're living out your truth, as long as you're being true to yourself and you're not hurting anybody else, you're fine. You don't need forgiveness of any kind. In fact, they they, they might say, to suggest that someone has done something wrong and therefore needs forgiveness from God is, is just the height of arrogance. So they call Jesus arrogant for an entirely different reason, and this sort of attitude has even been codified into law. See, were I to tell you here that that homosexuality or transgenderism were sin and therefore need to be repented of, that people need to admit their sin, bring it to the cross, and walk in the way of Christ simply because these sins are offenses against God, I might be in danger of breaking the law of the land. But as Jesus knows, sinners need Jesus. And so I need to say that exact thing, to do any less is to dishonor God and show hatred, not love, to my neighbor. And the very reason that we need to bring our sins to God is because He is the one who's been sinned against. Every sin that we commit is not only an offense against our neighbor, but every sin that we commit is also a a, a sin, treason even, against the Most High God. And therefore, when we sin, not only must we seek our neighbor's forgiveness— Not only must we go to them and say, what I've done is wrong, please forgive me, but most importantly, we need to seek God's forgiveness as well. And there's the rub. See, Jesus can only forgive sins if He's God. He's not just telling the man like... like, like, our pastor did earlier in this service. He's not just telling the man, if you've confessed your sins and if you've believed in God's Messiah, you will be forgiven. No, no, that's a true statement that any Christian could say to anyone who who has been converted. But Jesus is not just presenting the, the possibility of forgiveness. He's not just telling the man how he could go about being forgiven. He's certainly not telling the man to stop feeling so bad about himself because he's sure God will forgive him because, after all, God is very kind and generous and nice to us. No, none of those things. Jesus is telling the man straight up, based on his own authority, that he has forgiven the man of all his sins. And the Pharisees and the scribes, they recognize this. They have no doubt about what Jesus has said. And in fairness to them, if any other person was doing what Jesus does here, their accusations of blasphemy would be 100% right. But he's no other person. He's Jesus. 
And so how does he respond to their objections? Well, well, first of all, notice that he doesn't actually hear their objections. Just like he had earlier seen the faith of the five men, now he, he sees the thoughts of these religious leaders. He sees into their hearts, and he knows what they're saying to themselves. And so he responds, what's easier to say? Your sins are forgiven you, or, or rise and walk? And on the surface, that, that's a simple question, right? It's a whole lot easier to say things that can't be proven right or wrong than to say incredible things that will need a whole lot of evidence, right? So, for example, it's easier for me to say right here, right now, I have just telepathically moved a rock in the middle of the Sahara Desert than to say, okay, in six seconds, I'm going to hover eight feet off the ground, right? It's easier for me to say the one than to say the other. You can easily disprove the one quite easily. I'm not currently hovering. But the other one is practically impossible to prove or disprove. You you might think I'm delusional if I say I'm moving rocks in the Sahara Desert, but you you can't disprove it. And so also, it's easy to say, it's easy to say, your sins are forgiven you. No one can prove it, no one can disprove it. But it's a whole lot harder to say, rise, take up your bed, and walk. Because people will see right away whether what you have said is true or not. But now, Now, suppose I were to tell you those two things, that I've been moving rocks in the Sahara and that I was about to start hovering, and then I started hovering eight feet off the ground. Well, you might give that whole thing about moving rocks in the Sahara a second thought, might you? And why would you do that? Well, well, you do that because I'm plainly someone who's able to break the laws of physics. The laws that bind ordinary humans plainly don't apply to me. And Jesus is making a very similar point here. See, if he's the one who's able to reverse the fall in one area, might he not be the one who's able to reverse the effects of the fall entirely? If he's shown himself to be a messenger from God, one whose, whose words and works are the words and works of God himself, then might he not be exactly the one who has authority on earth to forgive sins? And that's exactly where Jesus goes. He asks the question, what's easier to say? Your sins are forgiven you or rise up and walk? but that you Pharisees and you scribes and you Christians may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. He said to the man who was paralyzed, I say to you, rise, pick up your bed, and go home. And this is one of the great purposes of Jesus' miracles. They're not just him pushing back the effects of the fall. No, no, they're they're attestations to his divine power and authority. The miracles that he does show that he's the, he's the one uniquely empowered by God to be Israel's Messiah and the Savior of the entire world. If God is empowering him by his Spirit to do these mighty signs, then he is the approved man of God. And notice, notice here also that Jesus uses a peculiar phrase to refer to himself. He calls himself the Son of Man, but that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. And he uses this title quite a lot, about 80 times in the four Gospels. And it comes from Daniel 7, verse 13, where a figure is described who at once looks both like God and like man. 
He looks like God, but at the same time, he looks like a man. He, he comes on the clouds, something that only God does, and, and he rules over an eternal and indestructible kingdom, again, something that only God does, but at the same time, he looks just like a mortal man. And by using this title, Jesus is provoking us with the fact that though he appears to be nothing more than a simple human, he had a true human body, a true human soul after all, and grew up like every single one of us does, and had to learn how to walk and talk and write. Though he appears to be nothing more than human, he is in fact God himself. His use of the title Son of Man is, interestingly, a claim not to humanity, but a claim to divinity. And this one who is at the same time both God with the power of the Spirit of God and man, Jesus, he has the power both to forgive sins and to heal those who are paralyzed. And so when he tells the man, rise, pick up your bed and go home, notice three commands. This man rises, he picks up his bed, and he goes home. His paralysis is simply gone. At a word from Jesus, the paralysis is, is, is gone in an, in an instant. He, he had to be lowered down into a house, and the mat had been carrying him, but now he goes out of the house, and he's carrying the mat. Isn't Jesus wonderful? Isn't this incredible? Isn't God great? And the man, you can see, the man realizes just that. He realizes how great and how glorious God is. And and as he's stepping out of the house, he's telling everyone about what God has done for him. And as he's glorifying God, everyone else joins in. And the whole crowd's just caught up in this amazement. they're, they're, They're gripped by the fact that a great thing has happened right in front of them. And they start glorifying God too, and they're all abuzz with it, telling all of Capernaum, wow, we've seen incredible things today. And it is incredible, isn't it? It is incredible. A man was broken, and now he's fixed. He was healed of paralysis. One moment, he was lying there, unable to move himself. And the next moment, he's, he's, he's getting up on legs that could never have carried him before. He's rolling up that mat with arms that were just wasted away mere minutes earlier. He's putting it on his back, a back that formerly had no ability to bear any weight. And he's just walking on out. Amazing things have happened. Jesus is incredible. But before we leave this story... I want to go back with you a few verses, back up to verse 23. Verse 23, Jesus asks this question. Which is easier, to say your sins are forgiven you, or to say rise and walk? And on the surface, the answer is quite easy, right? It's easier to say that which cannot be disproven. On the surface, it's easier to say your sins are forgiven you because you can't prove it, you can't disprove it. And in the vast majority of cases, that would be correct. That would be the one that is easier to say. But not for Jesus. Not for the one who claims to be the Son of Man. See, he claims to be both God and human. And if he is God with the power of God and the character of God, then he cannot lie. He is bound by his forgiveness of sins to take care of those sins. 
And this is where this question can be flipped on its head. See, it's easy. It's easy for the God who set the universe in motion, who created innumerable creatures, both great and small, who created and formed the nervous systems of countless humans in their mother's wombs. It's easy for that God to heal a man of paralysis. Compared to the great things he's already done, this is a, this is a small matter. But the forgiveness of sins is something else entirely. There's nothing simple about the forgiveness of sins. In fact, the forgiveness of sins was so incredibly difficult that it required God to take on human flesh, to become this son of man, to be born of a woman, to take on the form of a servant, to be beaten, to be humbled, to be judged as guilty when he was nothing but innocent, and to suffer the shameful death on a cross. See, these people who left that house in Capernaum that day were blown away. We've seen incredible things today, they say to each other. But, but if they were just referring to the healing of a man with paralysis, and if that's the only thing that sticks out to us as well, then we're missing the point. We're missing the point entirely. The central and most amazing fact of history is that the Son of Man, the second person of the Trinity, He's become human. And He really does forgive sins. He's no mere miracle worker. He's no small Messiah. Let's pray. Our Father, we do admit that we often think too small. Our opinions of Jesus and of You are just pitiable. But we ask that you would have pity on us in our ignorance and that you would give us a, a, a vision, a sight of the, of the glory of Christ. Help us to see this Son of Man who can take away our sins. Help us to see this One who can make us right with you. Father, help us to be enthralled with Jesus. For he is great and has done great and glorious things. Help us to wrap our entire lives around who he is and what he has done. Let us never fear being impolite. Let us bring those who need Jesus to the Savior of their souls. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.